This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, bankruptcy versus debt consolidation loans. Now, it's hard to believe that bankruptcy could be a, a better option mm-hmm. in situations because it, yeah. because of that's it's the scariness of the word right yeah sounds totally counterintuitive right one sounds good hey I'm getting a debt consolidation loan one sounds terrible oh my yes. god I'm filing for bankruptcy my life is over but there are certain circumstances where bankruptcy is a way better option and we're going to go through a bunch of factors for people to consider and you know just set the stage of what we're even talking about here okay, to begin good. with. Okay, good. Yeah, let's start with that. So, bankruptcy um, what it actually is and what and how a typical debt consolidation loan works. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, so so bankruptcy it's a federally legislated legal process. And what it does, it eliminates your debts. It allows you to start again fresh, unburdened by debts. It's available to individuals and businesses in Canada when they're unable to repay their financial obligations. Uh, In Canadian bankruptcy law, you have to use a licensed insolvency trustee. That was formerly known as a trustee in bankruptcy or bankruptcy trustee, but LIT is is the new term. Um, Eligibility for bankruptcy is very, very low. It hasn't changed since about 1930. You need to owe at least $1,000 and generally be unable to meet your debt obligations. But it's also important to know that you don't need permission from anybody to file for bankruptcy. So, you know, if the debt collectors are calling you or hounding you or threatening to sue you, they can't suddenly say, hey, you're not allowed to go into bankruptcy. We want to be able to pick at the bones type of thing. Uh, Anybody is entitled to get relief. It's your legal right and your creditors don't have to consent. Now, can I go back for just uh, for a moment? Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to use a licensed insolvency trustee. That's right. But I and and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I see the word bankruptcy mm-hmm. uh, often when people, uh, I mean, in all kinds of situations, advertising situations, mm-hmm. whether it be debt counseling yep. services, I see the word bankruptcy. Um, could I even in, in for, uh, for paycheck you know those operations where you do your paycheck? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not, but more the more the um, uh, the first one, mm-hmm. uh, you see the word bankruptcy, but th- in fact, they can't do that. No, absolutely. And anyone who can't listen- facilitate it. Yeah, anyone who listens to our show knows it's so important who you get advice from. Um, and there's a lot of folks out there who will try to give you advice on, hey, you shouldn't go bankrupt or you should, or here's how it works, but they're not actually licensed insolvency trustees. So, you know, I liken it to, would you go to a back alley dentist to get a toothache looked at? No, you'd go to the dentist who's certified, licensed, who knows what he or she is doing, and you've got some recourse if something does happen, you know, in in that situation. So it's very much a case of, yeah, be careful who you're getting advice about bankruptcy from, because oftentimes it's self-interested individuals who just don't want you to explore this option because it'd be good for you and bad for them. Exactly. So a debt counseling organization, 
they're not going to be able to facilitate it. No, they can never help you with filing the bankruptcy. And the best ones, well, sure, they'll give you some good advice. uh, But some of the worst ones will only give you self-serving advice that will steer you away from what could be a good legal option for you. Okay, so what about debt consolidation loans? Mm -hmm. So debt consolidation, you know, if bankruptcy is the last resort, the last option people typically look at, debt consolidation is probably the first option people look at when they know they're having trouble with their debts. So what happens in a debt consolidation loan is a single bank steps forward to pay off all of your other debts. So let's say you've got four or five credit cards, maybe a couple payday loans, um, and things are all being charged various different interest rates, some higher than lower. The idea is that you'll work with a single bank and they'll pay off all of your other debts and then you'll pay back that single bank, you know, all the full amount of what's been borrowed. But generally you're making a single monthly payment and ideally you're going to save a bunch on the interest rate. So a reasonable expectation on a consolidation loan might be between 10 and 12% interest, whereas a credit card is, you know, 19 to 29%. A payday loan is, you know, probably 40 to 60% on just very, very high rates. So the idea of a consolidation loan, one payment and you save some money. Okay, fair enough. So I know there's situations where filing a personal bankruptcy is the solution that might make more sense mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's struggling with their debt. Can we talk about what those four situations are? Yeah, sure. So the first one is if your credit history is poor. So one of the major challenges of trying to get a consolidation loan is that you've got to be able to show you're going to have the ability to pay off the loan and quite often your creditors are going to first look to your credit rating or your credit history. Uh, If you've been missing payments, paying things late, missing your cell phone, there are accounts that are overdue if you're being taken to court, all of those things are going to have an impact on your eligibility for a consolidation loan to the extent that you're probably not going to be able to be approved unless you have a very, very high credit rating. Okay. And I like the the fact that you noted here in the notes for this segment that it's a common misperception that only people with bad credit file bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. That was a huge learning for me as I started doing this work, you know, more than 10 years ago now. I thought when people came in to see me, they'd be missing payments for, you know, months, if not years, their credit would be in the tank. But it's actually some research that shows up to 70% of people that file for bankruptcy actually have perfect credit. Hmm. They never miss any payments. They never go delinquent. If you pulled their credit score, it'd be something that you would think is pretty good. But they're struggling under the weight of forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars of debt. They can keep that perfect credit for the rest of their life if they make minimum payments. But they're also going to keep that forty, fifty, sixty thousand of debt. It's not going to really go down over time if you're only paying minimums. Got it. What about assets? How are they impacted? Yeah. So another situation where bankruptcy can be a better option than a consolidation loan is if you have few assets, if any. And the reason for that um, is if you're trying to get a consolidation loan, lenders really have to look at security. So they have to. Consider consider, okay, I'm the new bank that's stepping forward. I'm going to pay off banks, A, B, C, D, payday loans, whoever. So I've given them a hundred cents on the dollar, but I, the new bank, have now taken a bunch of risk, right? right? And I hope you're going to pay me back, but I'd rather have some security. And what that means is it's going to be much, much easier and possible to qualify for a consolidation loan if you've got an asset that you can pledge as security. So it could be real estate. You know, it could be a house where you've got a bunch of equity in there. It could be a vehicle where there's no loan against it. It could be an investment account that's not an RRSP. Typically, if you go to consolidate your debts, um, the bank is going to ask you, well, what's your credit history, credit rating, and do you have any assets you can pledge as security? If you don't have assets, even with very strong credit, it's very difficult to qualify for a consolidation loan. And I think it's always such a scary concept to actually use your assets in that situation too, right? Because 
you're you're setting yourself up to for loss. Oh, exactly. Yeah. If you've suddenly put the bank on title to your house, well, then you've got someone else to consider when you're renewing mortgages. If you default on the consolidation loan, um, the bank could potentially start to start a foreclosure proceedings on your house. So you really want to be a bit careful when you're pledging assets. You know, one other really big pitfall for consolidation loans is sometimes, you know, the bank will say, okay, you don't have assets, but why don't you get me a co-signer? You know, why don't you speak to a friend, a family member, parent, grandparent, child, whatever, and get somebody else to sign on the dotted line? Because I know we're never going to have to call this guarantee, but we just want it here for security purposes, okay? Yeah. As we talk about in the show quite often, Elaine, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never is Almost our answer. Never Almost is what you never. Say. That's right, um, because all you've done at that point is you've given the bank another pocket to dig into. You've enlarged your debt situation to now include other friends or family members where you really don't want to let them down. Um, and quite often, when people co-sign their debts, they never planned on actually paying the debt off. They were just doing it as a favor. And if you're unable to pay off a consolidation loan, it's not a fifty-fifty liability. It's one hundred percent could come to the co-signer as their obligation. Fair so enough. So if you've got few assets. And if you think they're going to be requiring a co-signer, um, consolidation can be a very risky option. Whereas if you compare it to a bankruptcy, bankruptcy, you don't need to have a minimum number of assets to file. It's fine if you've got no assets. And generally, most people keep their assets as they go through a bankruptcy. Uh, and there's no idea of a co-signer in a bankruptcy proceeding. You deal with your own situation. It doesn't enlarge it to include anybody else. What kind of influence can your income have on those two ways. Yeah, that's a great segue to our next point, Elaine. If you've got uncertain income, you know, if you've been self-employed, if you're not the T4 employee that puts the same amount of money in the bank every month, very, very difficult to get qualified for a consolidation loan. You know, banks are really going to want to see, you know, months of history, consistent income. Uh, If you're self-employed, you know, quite often your income can go up, feast and famine. Sometimes there's tax obligations that make your income look, you know, worse at certain times in the year. Um, So if your income is uncertain, consolidation loan can be tough. And also, even if you did get approved for it, making the same payment every month can be difficult if your income is going all over the place. You've got necessities to pay, um, and that consolidation loan is going to be a similar payment each month when your income is high or not. So you really want to look ahead and make sure you could afford the payments. You know That compares to if you're in a bankruptcy, the way bankruptcy payments work is they're scaled dollar for dollar to your income. So if you're in a situation where you're low income, you pay a minimal cost, just the trustee fees each month. If you're in a situation where you're earning a lot of income, well, then you're paying back part of your debt as part of the bankruptcy. But every month, your payment could change based on your income in a bankruptcy. So it scales. Okay. Mm-hmm. And your budget maxed out. That's your fourth, that's your fourth situation. Um, what what does that mean? Like how and how does that impact either one of those? Yeah, what it means from a consolidation loan is, you know, oftentimes people look at debt consolidation as this incredible option that's going to be great, but when they actually realize that even the debt consolidation payment it's not going to be affordable given their budget, given their other obligations. Because they're spending their money already. They've, they, they're spending everything that they get in mm-hmm. the door. Quite often, the clients that I see, a lot of them have tried to consolidate, and what they found is they've had to run up the credit cards again that Got they originally it. consolidated because the cost of living or something happens, they don't have an emergency fund. Um, but also, it's still expensive. You're still paying back all of the debt that you've spent plus interest over time. Whereas, again, if you compare it to a bankruptcy, you know, a bankruptcy, you almost never pay back the full 
amount of the debt, unless something's really strange, the debt's low and your income is really high. So quite often you're getting a very big, big break on the amount of debt that you owe if you file through a bankruptcy, and that can help with your budget being maxed out. You know, another point there is if you go through a bankruptcy, you're required to come for two financial counseling sessions where we talk to you about your budget, about your spending, about how to save money, about how to rebuild your credit in the future. So all of those things are going to help arm you to be better able to emerge from bankruptcy without debt. The next time, mm-hmm. or, or even just not even the next time, but once you've you've finished and you're moving on. Yeah. Uh, what So key points, can we do a bit of a summary of the things to keep in mind when considering bankruptcy versus a debt consolidation loan? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the, the first thing to consider, um, you know, almost working backwards is, are you going to be able to afford the payment? Is this something that's going to really help you out consolidating the debts? Or is it still going to be something that even at 12% interest or whatever, the debt problem is still too big for you to afford? Um, I think you have to consider what's your credit history and do you have any assets? Because both of those are going to be really important uh, for a lender to consider. And then also, is your income uncertain? Does it go up or down on a monthly basis? You know, the final point to make here, Elaine, is, you know, going through a bankruptcy, you've got a certain end date. You know exactly when you're going to be debt free. Um, I've seen a lot of consolidation loans where they were for an initial five-year term. Ten years later, the person's still paying them off because they've had to do this or that or consolidate other debts. At least in a bankruptcy, you know the day when you're going to emerge with zero debt, nothing owing to anybody. And that's a great day. I think, and you know, in finishing out this segment, I think the most important thing is is to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing and and how the best way to proceed is. And and while Sands and Associates does bankruptcies and consumer proposals, absolutely as licensed insolvency trustees, um, they'll also talk you through the situation. And maybe either one of those isn't the best fit for you. Exactly. And yeah. You can help them through. Yeah, that. Elaine. Every consultation, we go through all options, including debt consolidation. Sometimes it works great, but in many cases, the solution people think sounds great, but when you get to the nitty-gritty, there are better options out there. So to book a confidential free debt consultation, simply call Sands & Associates toll-free at 1-800-661-3030 or go to the website sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment uh, we're calling Consumer... uh, Well, it's it's like consumer news, Mm -hmm. which I think is is pretty good. Big consumer news, my gosh. And this, yeah. And and yeah, thanks for stealing my thunder. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But it is. It's it's frightening to me, or or scary, or unnerving uh, of these numbers. And what we're talking about is uh, uh, recently released government stats, and this is for July, mm-hmm. July of this year, not July of last year, but July of this year, uh, showing the number of uh, the increase, the number of people who are filing for bankruptcy or making consumer proposals in this province. And I know that I know that on one hand, it's a very good thing that people mm-hmm. are taking action and dealing with their debt. The uh, unnerving part of this is that the numbers are growing so rapidly. Yeah. And that's a bit scary to me. Yeah. So, Elaine, I, I monitor these numbers. I've been a trustee for a lot of years here, um, and I've never seen an increase like what we saw here. So, to cut the suspense here, so it's a 35% year-over-year growth just in the province of BC, the month of July 2019 over July 2018, 35.5% more BC consumers filed bankruptcies or did consumer proposals. 
I'm used to seeing 3 5% increase, 7% increase, something like that. Year over the, year. Year over year. This was massive. More than double the amount for Canada. And, you know, that's still high. You know, Canada as a whole, it's up about 16 17%. But, but it's double. But double the amount of Canada as the whole. Way more than Alberta, way more than Ontario, way more than Quebec. Um, so my offices felt really busy in July, and now I know why. It seemed like a lot of people in BC uh, finally hit on the point that, oh my God, we're in a tough situation. Let's start to make some steps to move forward. Now, before we start drilling down um, into the the reasons, etc., these numbers are pretty stacked. So you go, oh, well, you know, 35% increase. What does that mean in, in hard numbers? Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So last year in July, it was near around 700, the low 700 number of folks who were filing uh, bankruptcies or consumer proposals in the province of BC. Uh, this year, it was over 1,000. It was 1,001. It crested the thousand person mark. So you can imagine in just our province, a thousand people in July made the tough decision and the right decision in a lot of cases, but not an easy decision to file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Okay. So now let's look at, let's drill down. Why? What's going on? Is it just our cost of living, which is the big driver mm-hmm. being real estate in this province, or, or but that's just the lower mainland. Like, what yeah. do you think's going on here? You know, the number one thing is definitely the cost of living, Elaine. So, um, you know, costs have increased dramatically in the past number of years, and specifically in the lower mainland and on Vancouver Island. Um, you know, rental costs have really started to catch up to the inflation in the housing capital costs over the years. And I have uh, to admit that I forget about the rental costs. I mm-hmm. always think about the price of real estate, which is just. Uh, Fairyland for a majority yeah. of people, they can't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's depressing if you're somebody new thinking off, oh my God, that's going to take me 20 years to save a down payment and then 30 years to pay off the mortgage. Exactly. That's your whole lifetime being in debt for your house there. Yeah. Uh, but what this news article, or sorry, what a recent news article said, you know, about cost of living is that rental costs, they're now at a 10 year high in nearly every market in Canada and average national rents, and we know BC is going faster than this, but it's up 4.4% over the last couple of years. Uh, Vancouver's annual apartment rental price grew 7.1% over the past four years. And again, I think that's low. Anecdotally, I'm seeing people coming in saying, I was renting an apartment for 1200 I left that place, now I see it's on the market a few years later, and it's 1800 exactly. or it's 2000 So yeah. it seemed like there's some very large spikes in housing costs, and that's led to a lot of consumers who come in to see me in the Vancouver office. You know, maybe their income is twenty two or 2300 but half of their money is going to rent, which really puts them in a very tough situation where it should be a third of their income. But when I speak to them, they've got a roommate. They're not living in a gold-plated place. It's a, it's just a tough, tough situation to find anything, it seems, that's affordable. And for so many folks, it makes much more sense to be living outside of the center of mm-hmm. the lower mainland, even if you're working in the in the downtown or the environs of, of the city of Vancouver. Uh, and then you, you've got to factor in your fuel and transportation costs. Yeah, your commute costs, your time, all of that. And you're right, you know, ideally the rental costs are going to be a bit lower. Uh, The median cost of renting a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver was recently reported at $2,100 per month. $2,100. So by good metrics, if that's a third of your income, the average person should be earning about $6,000, $6,500 after taxes. 
Not many people are making that kind of money in Vancouver, unfortunately. The, the industrial base just doesn't seem to support those incomes for a lot of folks. And then we've got the jobs numbers as well, so mm-hmm. that gets reflected into that. Yeah, so BC's been very strong these past number of years from employment, um, but just in the last couple of months now, BC has shed jobs. So the last three months consecutively, BC has shed jobs rather than added them. So it's a bit of an indicator, okay, are things starting to turn, unfortunately. And there's other things, uh, other pressures, for example, on small business, government tax increases. We saw those come into effect recently. Exactly. So the elimination of MSP is great for individuals, but for a lot of small businesses, you know, there's certain thresholds where, you know, if you're at four employees, but you hire the fifth employee, well, then you have to pay the new tax. A lot of businesses are holding back from hiring new employees because they're going to have to pay the new employee health tax. Uh, As well, those folks who are already, you know, have a certain number of employees, they've got to now absorb what's not an insignificant hit to their bottom line, um, you know, with no ability to raise prices in a lot of situations. So I find a lot of small business persons coming in saying, yeah, this is just another squeeze that's putting us in a tough spot. We've talked uh, before about this that was a surprise to you when it first really started showing up, and that was how Canada Revenue Agency Mm -hmm. is collecting their fines or their fees now, and and that's changed. Yeah, it's it's changed in a way that I almost find morally offensive, maybe to me, um, in that it almost seems, okay, the best strategy with the government to owe them a ton of money because then they're going to be patient with you. What I've seen is people have been coming through my doors, service industry workers, um, you know, cashiers at grocery stores where they might owe five or $6,000 to the government. Very, very small fish in the grand scheme of things. But the government has been incredibly aggressive in these past few months at starting to garnish wages of low-income individuals for small debts. So I've got individuals like those situations, $2,200 working in the service industry, $1,000 a month of this person's income was being taken by the government to pay off the debt. So obviously he couldn't live at that point. Like after he pays the rent, there's not a thousand dollars left over. So what we were able to do in each of these situations is to file a consumer proposal. But in the past, we probably would have said, okay, at five or six thousand dollars, government's probably going to give you a runway of a couple years here. Just chip away at it as you can. But when the government starts to garnish in very small numbers, it puts a lot more people into the system than I think might otherwise be there. And what I alluded to earlier is it still seems that if you owed a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in taxes. I don't see these folks getting garnished near as much as the small individuals. So I think at some point the government thinks, okay, let's work with people if there's a big debt, but if it's a small debt, let's just hit them hard. It seems like there's been a change there in the past few months. And you're somebody that pays a great deal of attention to all these kinds of numbers and trends, et cetera. How do you, what do you think about this? Do you think it's going to keep going? Are we, are we getting ourselves into worse shape or what? Well, everything is cyclical with our economic system. And they it's been, say that. Yeah, it's been since about 2008, 2009, since bankruptcies really spiked, and then they've been going down pretty well since then. So from my point of view, I think this is the start of a turn, and I think it's going to be a multi-year cycle where a lot more people are going to need to do bankruptcies or consumer proposals. And I was recently at a trustee conference with trustees across the country, and that's generally the shared sentiment, is, you know, typically once economic numbers start to go a little bit downward trending, um, to Typically, once interest rates start to tick up a bit, um, there's about a two-year lag till when insolvencies really start to spike, which is what we think we're seeing kind of the thin edge of that as of now, the first spike in insolvencies. So if I'm not in trouble yet, what are, are there some things that I can do to th- buckle down right now and start paying attention to so I don't fall into that yeah, situation? Absolutely. A couple of quick ones. You know, keep track of where your money's going each month. You'd be amazed how 
the insights that you'll get if you just track every dollar for a month, then you'll be able to make some course corrections that way. Uh, second thing, and maybe even more important, is start to set aside some savings. So a lot of people that come to see us, if they had an emergency fund, they'd be in a lot less dire of a situation than not having one because they immediately go to credit when they don't have the emergency fund saved. If you want to talk to Blair or any of the staff at Sands & Associates, it's easy to do. Book your confidential free debt consultation, even if you're not in that situation yet, to get some good ideas, check out their website as well. Uh, they've got local offices uh, all over the province. Sands & Associates, this is their number, 1-800-661-3030, or visit that website, sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I love a segment where we talk about things that people can... That you that, that we can prevent them from doing. Yeah, five mistakes. Pitfalls. Yeah, pitfalls, yeah. mistakes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and this is a, a segment that's about what not to do mm-hmm. when you're taking charge of your finances. So the bells have been going off. You've been hitting yourself in the head with the hammer, going, "Okay, I got to do something. I got to do it now." This is what you don't do. And often these are the things that you think you should. Right. And somebody will say, oh, yeah, of course you should do that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, go for it. We're saying, well, stop, think twice about it, Uh, at least hear what we have to say about a lot of years of client experience. These are things that people often say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that because it complicates things later and doesn't generally solve the problem. Okay. Let's let's talk about a couple of the the tactics that we consider Mm -hmm. uh, that we possibly shouldn't. Yeah, so number one, that's the most heartbreaking thing that I ever see, and I see it less now than it did a few years ago, but still it happens, is when people are facing a debt problem and they've saved RRSPs their whole life, maybe they've got a whole big nest egg set up there in RRSPs, quite often they'll start to cash in those RRSPs to pay their debts. And you say one of the things that we need to do individually is, you know, have a savings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Save some money, put some money aside, but... I mean, it's important to do that into an RRSP for sure, Mm -hmm. but that's not what you're talking about. No. So what I'm saying is, you know, not the saving money part. That's the great part. But it's saying, oh, my God, I've got these credit card bills. I've got this line of credit. Something's happened. I'm not able to pay it off. And often the collection agent or even the bank's financial advisor will say, well, you've got all this money sitting in RRSPs, don't you? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, why don't you cash that in to pay us off? And, you know, then that'll make us go away. And they're right, it will make the debt go away, but my God, what the person's done there, it's a double whammy. So first off, what they're not aware of, and often what they're not told, is that they could never be forced to cash in those RRSPs. So even if they had to file for a bankruptcy, the only thing they would have to lose out of those RRSPs is just whatever they've contributed in the last 12 months. And most of the time, if you're in a debt situation, you stop contributing to your RRSPs. So the vast majority of cases, 100% dollar for dollar of RRSPs could be retained even if the person had to file for bankruptcy. But if they don't know that, there's no protection. If you cash in your RRSPs yourself and hand the money over to your creditors, you've just given them access to an asset that they should never have been entitled to. If you think about it like a company pension plan, most people would know you can't suddenly cash in your pension plan to deal with a short-term debt. And why would you want to? Obviously, you want that to live for the rest of your life. 
Well, RRSPs, you should think about them exactly the same way. Even though you have the option to cash them in, I've never seen a situation where it's the right answer to do so to pay debts. And where I said there's a double whammy, so, you know, the first part of it is you don't have the money there for retirement, and oftentimes it doesn't solve the debt problem anyway because you've still got some issues there. But the second part of that is the income tax hit. So a lot of people don't plan on this, that when they cash in the RRSPs, they're not going to get 100% of what they requested. The government or the the financial institution is going to hold back some portion for taxes, but it's often not enough. So at the end of that tax year, maybe the person's cashed in their RRSPs, they paid off their debt, they're feeling pretty good, and then suddenly they get hit with a big tax bill from the government because they got to pay tax on the money they pulled in from those RRSPs. Yeah, really important to remember. Yeah, so if you're, if any of the listeners, if you're hearing anybody in your personal life that's saying, oh, I'm going to cash in RRSPs to pay this off, you know, not saying don't do it, but don't do it unless you understand fully all the situations, all the protections, and it'd be news to me if there's a good situation where you should be cashing in RRSPs. I just haven't seen it. Now, the next one, it's it seems again like a natural thing to do. Not mm-hmm. a, and not it's not about asking somebody to co-sign the loan. It's about being asked to co-sign the loan. Mm-hmm. If I'm able to help you in some way, absolutely I'm going to do that. Whatever you need and I'm just co-signing, right? Yeah. I mean, what harm how much harm can that cause? But I know that you have a a very strong position on this. Yeah, and th- and this comes just from years of having people in my office and you know, going down the list of debts and saying, "Yeah, I can help you with XYZ so on and so forth. I can help you with all these debts." But then they tell me, "Oh, well, you know, my mom, my dad, my brother, somebody um, co-signed on this debt." And what does that mean for the person who co-signed? Well, what it means is when I tell these other people they're not getting paid back, that's the end of the story. They've got no other pockets to dig into. But when I tell the person who you've co-signed the debt with your parents for, well, what they're going to do is go to your parents and say, okay, we want 100% of the debt back right away. The person has breached the terms of the agreement. So almost always the discussion that I have with individuals is, well, the person who co-signed, they never thought they'd have to pay off 100% of the debt. They thought at most it's 50-50. Well, no, it's 100% of the debt. It's joint and several liability. And the second part, too, is they didn't think they'd have to pay anything ever. They just did this, you know, as a matter of trying to help you out, to help you get approved. You intended on making all the payments, but you know what? Life can intervene. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about difficult emotional situations Mm -hmm. when you're letting somebody down that you have to deal with for the rest of your life, where you've asked them to co-sign, if you ever have to deal with your other debts, they're going to be left paying off 100% of that debt. So in every experience that I've seen, the person, if they had not gotten that co-signer, it might have forced them to actually take steps earlier to deal with their financial situation, but they would have been better off having done that because it would have only involved them. It wouldn't have involved other family members or friends or people who put their name on the dotted line. Yeah, regardless of the action that they take, whether it's a bankruptcy or consumer proposal, it's not going to include them. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is just another great reason why uh, you want to make that appointment, go see somebody at Sands and Associates, yeah. any of the staff to say, okay, this is my situation, what should I do? Yeah, and even if you're thinking about getting a co-signed debt, you know, you can come in and ask us about that as well. We can tell you examples where, okay, be aware if this happens, so on and so forth. Eyes wide open, make whatever decision you want. But sometimes you can be really pushed into there. And sometimes it's at the 11th hour, you're ready to sign off on the financing. And the bank manager says, oh, you know what? We've just got one extra hurdle. We actually need to get a co-signer on this. And you haven't thought about it, but you don't want this to go sideways. So it's the last thing you do is to put the co-signer on. And it's the most important, impactful thing that you did the whole time. Yeah. Okay, let's go into a a couple of more um, 
things that people shouldn't do, but they're almost given an opportunity to, and it, and it kind of makes sense. So at least I'm doing something. Yeah. That minimum payment thing. Oh, exactly. The minimum payment trap, the minimum payment hamster wheel, whatever you want to <laughs> call it. Um, but you hit it right in the head there, Elaine. You're doing something. You're paying minimums each month, and you're being rewarded for it because your credit rating is probably great. You know, you go online, free credit score. Oh, my God, it's good. I'm making my minimum payments every month. Never mind that you got twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars of debt, but your credit score looks great because you're not delinquent. And the credit card companies actually suggesting, right? Mm-hmm. You, if you make this, yeah. you know, we'll we'll just continue on. Oh yeah. So it's not like I'm making up the number that I'm paying. No. That ten dollars or fifteen dollars oh. or whatever it is. Yeah. No. Exactly. And it, it's that absurdly low that some of the major banks, well, you might be paying two hundred dollars on your minimum. But $10 of that is what's actually reducing the principal. The rest is interest, charges, things like that. Um, So the numbers get scary really quickly. You know, if it was 18% interest, which is pretty standard, even if it was a debt of $1,000, you can be looking at a 10-year calendar to pay that off just at the minimums. And you can imagine how many times you would have paid the debt over, probably four or five times over, you would pay that $1,000 over a 10-year period. It's just not right that they state that on there. I know they've taken measures to explain that, that, yeah, if you pay this, it'll take you Mm -hmm. this period of time to pay it off. I get that, and and kudos to them for doing that. But they should actually just... I mean, it just, it's just not right. Yeah. Well, what'll be interesting, and let's all stay tuned, is what Quebec's doing. So we talked about that a few months ago there. I remember, yeah. Quebec is saying, well, the minimum payment has to be 5% of the statement balance. Right. So that's a lot more than 10 bucks. So 5%, that turns credit cards into a 20-month payment plan. I'm okay with that, a 20-month payment plan for credit cards. I'm not okay with a 20-year or a 200-year. So I think it'll be fascinating as that gets implemented in Quebec and see how things change or not. Do you remember the date that that was being implemented? And then there's a period of time that we have to wait and see how it all Yeah, it was early August was when it came into effect here. Okay, so so this time next year we'll be able to talk a little bit further about it and see what kind of impact it did have, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. (laughs) they'll either be really happy to tell us or not share anything about it. Well, who knows, but I don't see it as a negative thing, but I can imagine some people are going to have a shock if they thought new credit cards will work the same as the old and the new ones are requiring one-twentieth of the balance every month as opposed to one-thousandth or whatever it works out to be. Oh, good point. See, I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking it would be a universal, everybody falls under this category, but that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, there's going to be transitions. Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of good, well-meaning people out there in the world that want to help you with your dad and help you figure things out. And uh, and then there's some people who are, you know, sort of ready to take advantage of you. Yeah. And I think I think it's an important point about where you're getting your advice from and your information from. Yeah. So, it, you know, my, my doctor says, you know, his biggest rival is Dr. Google. And it's not, not a good rival to have. You know, you, I you use st- Dr. Google, by the uh-huh. way. <laughs> you start with blurred vision and suddenly everyone's dying the next day type, type right. of thing. Uh, a lot of the same can happen with your debt. So you really got to be careful. You know, you can go down rabbit holes online, message boards, things, and you'll find some truth, but a whole lot of obfuscation there. But also, even if you're sitting across from a professional you really need to make sure it's the right professional to help you and they don't have a conflict of interest. If you're dealing with a credit counselor that's funded by the banks, which not-for-profit credit counselors are funded by the banks, their objectives are completely different than yours. Their objective is to get 100% of the debt back and they can't reduce the amounts that you owe. When you sit down with a trustee, my objective as an officer of the court is to explain the rules to you, make sure you stay within those rules, but I've got no beholdenness to anybody to try to get you to pay back more or less or whatever. I want to work out something that's fair 
fair and reasonable as an impartial, unbiased professional. So if you're dealing with a trustee, you've got that protection, that code of ethics, all that expertise. If you're dealing with a credit counselor or a bank employee uh, or even a collection agent, sometimes collection agents will play good cop, bad cop and really try to, to give you the impression they're helping you out, whereas usually they're giving you counseling that makes them way better off at your expense. You're not doing the right thing for you or for your overall situation. I think the, the one, of, and the last one is, I think, sometimes the most important one is that we talk about all the physical things and the, the, the formal things that one can do when you get yourself into debt and you can take action and you can do this and this and da, 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 da. But the emotional toll mm-hmm. that it takes on folks is sometimes unbearable. And yeah. I, know that y- I know that you see that when people come in your door mm-hmm. to try to figure out um, what their next step should be and... It must be extraordinary when you get to help them and they they realize how much stress they've actually put themselves under. Yeah, so I think that the mistake is just, you know, carrying everything themselves, not reaching out for help. And yeah, I see people coming into the first meeting, they don't know what they're walking into, they're hunched over, you can tell their heartbeats going through the roof type of thing. But then as soon as they can understand, okay, there's a professional here to help you, you can now start to unload some of these things that you've been carrying. The transformation is just remarkable. People can suddenly get better jobs, earn more money, have better personal relationships, because they didn't realize exactly how much being in debt is holding them back. Something that's always there on your mind, you're not sleeping and you're not eating, you just feel hopeless about it. Um, I have nobody leaving my meetings with a hopeless sense. They've got an idea of what they can do to move forward. Sometimes it's a little bit of work, sometimes it's easier than others, but to at least have a plan and to have someone working with you, that can make all the difference in eliminating the debt stress. There also seems to be this thing that we, we should automatically know how to do this stuff. Mm. And we, we didn't get the, you know, unless you took unless you took economics or you studied it, you, yeah. don't, you don't get all the information. Well, and Elaine, I took economics and I took accounting and all that. I had no idea about this until I became a trustee. So the average person, I don't think it's a failing. They don't know this. They just don't. If you want to book your confidential free debt consultation, call Sands & Associates. Here's their number, 1-800-661-3030 or go to their website, chock full of good information. It's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Listen, for information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to the website, sands-trustee.com, and I'll mention that again at the end of the segment as well. It's a great place to start if you've got questions. So this segment's all about a credit rating, and I know that uh, people care a great deal about their credit rating. Uh, We're going to talk about sort of four things that can negatively impact your credit rating and how to avoid them. Mm -hmm. So let's... Let's start with, you know, credit bureaus and the information they hold about yeah, us. Yeah, how does it all work? Yeah, how, how does the does system work? work, right? Yeah. Well, there are two credit bureaus that are used by banks and lenders in Canada. There's Equifax and there's TransUnion. You might have heard of both of those brands because I think at least one, if not two of them, have had big data breaches in the last couple of years. Mm. So uh, what's definitely come to light is that these folks have a lot of personal information about each and every Canadian. Um, they're two separate bureaus and they might not have the same information about you. Sometimes they get sources from different places and sometimes 
because there's inaccuracies on one or both. What your credit report is, is it's essentially a public record of your credit history. So it includes personal information, um, information about your debts, how long you had an account, the balance, the payment history, are you ever late, have you been in collections, have you been sued. Um, Typically, your credit history or your credit report is updated around once a month uh, when the lenders report new balances or payments, and it could be at any point in the month. Some lenders report on the 5th, some on the 25th, some somewhere in between. So pulling your credit at different times in the month can actually show you different results there. Uh, Your credit score, which is often what people are talking about when they say your credit rating, it's a numerical number. It's typically in the range of 300 to 900, with 900 being about as good as you can get and 300 being uh, about as bad as you can get. You know, someone with either no history or some a lot of delinquent issues. So most people want to be closer, you know, to the 7-800 if they're able to do so. Okay. And it's important to banks and lenders, right? They they yeah. pay attention to it. They, that's s- it. they set it yeah. and they're paying attention to everything else that's, that's sort of contributing to it. Yeah. So the way the credit reports originally started and credit score started is it was exclusively for banks. It was a profitability measure. So a higher credit score meant to the banks, okay, there's less of a risk of us not getting paid back and probably this person's going to pay us a bunch of interest over time because their history has been that they make in every single payment and we've made money in the past off of them. Got it. So where that's changed is it's become this external measure that a lot of people use as a barometer of their overall financial health. So having perfect credit doesn't mean that you're financially secure. Having terrible credit doesn't mean that you're financially terrible. It's just one variable out of a number of which that can really go into your overall financial health. But all things being equal, you do want to pay a bit of attention to your credit rating because more and more, you know, whether it's lenders or sometimes landlords, people are looking at your credit rating to make decisions about you because it's an easy indicator and something that people are knowing more and more about. And it sounds like they they sort of, uh, banks and lenders would look at a cross-section of people as well mm-hmm. to sort of Set, set some standards that they're oh, looking at month to month? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, in some cases, you know, if they want to sell more of a certain product, well, then they'll lower the credit score eligibility, for I example. See. Okay. Um, so, yes, there's moving pieces at all points. Um, I think for today, let's talk about, because there's so much misinformation about credit reports, what builds your credit, what doesn't, what hurts okay. you. So, we've got four things today that are a bit counterintuitive, but really important for people to know. Um, if you're concerned about your credit and you're doing any of these things, uh, you probably want to stop doing them and your credit's going to improve as a result. Okay, so number one, paying a bill late. And you've included cell phone bills, especially cell phone bills. Yeah, so generally a best practice is obviously to pay things on time. But if you're really concerned about building your credit, you should even pay things early just to make sure that nothing is ever going to get delinquent on there. And what I see again and again, the research shows is that it's often the smaller bills, the things like the cell phone bills, you know, Maybe it's 100 or thereabouts per month, and you're not as disciplined on that, but you're paying all your other bills, the bigger credit cards, the student loans, every month there. But what cell phone providers are known for doing is because they know if you don't pay, they're probably not going to take you to court. It's not big enough dollars at stake. But as soon as you're delinquent, they're very adamant at updating the credit bureau on each and every delinquent payment. So that small $100-ish payment each month, you know, maybe you're delinquent on that three times in the last six months, that's going to hurt your credit in a big way. And if you were thinking, you know, there's some uh, magnitude that matters, no. Any delinquent payment, especially even the small ones, because they tend to get reported more, can have a deleterious effect on your on your credit rating. So this is interesting because you you've included in the notes about this that you guys that Sands and Associates your people have been told that unpaid cell phone bills are the number one reason people 
get denied for mortgages, which yeah. is just crazy. Oh, yeah. No, we, we've sat down. There's a mortgage broker, Richard Moxley, who literally wrote the book on credit ratings in Canada called The Nine Rules of Credit. He's been a guest on this show before. Yes. And he said, yeah, 100% in his experience, unpaid cell phone bills deny people more mortgages than all other debts put together. And this was scary to me. This this was crazy. And I, and I know this is part of what you're supposed to be saying, but yeah. I couldn't believe this, that late payments uh, remain on a credit report for up to six years from the date mm-hmm. reported and the late payment remains even if you pay the past due balance. Yeah. So you could miss what a couple of cell phone bills or, or and even though you've paid them but they mm-hmm. were late and they stay up to 6 it's years. It's still on there all of the activity typically stays for 6 years. Yep. Now who gets to see that activity and I, I'm sure you're probably going to talk about that but I'm always curious about yeah, well, it's typically by your consent. So you can see it at any point. You can pull your own credit at any point. And that costs you nothing and doesn't hurt your score. Okay. But it's when you go out and apply for financing. So whether it's at the bank or the car dealership or credit card application, that's when they get your consent to pull a credit report. Oh, I see. And okay. depending on what comes back, that determines are you going to get the financing? What rate is it going to be? Are they going to want to deal with you at all? Um, that's going to be a really big indicator. Okay. So what's the next thing that people commonly do uh, that, and it, that impacts their credit rating? Yeah, this one I think is... It's more widely known, but still very important, is having a high balance. So there's a thing called credit utilization. That's an important metric for your credit score. If you're over 50% of utilization, that's typically a bad thing. So what I mean by that is you've got a $1,000 card and your balance is $500 on it. When they pull the credit report information, your utilization is at 50%. If the balance is at 800 when they pull it, your utilization is at 80%. Scores above 50% are viewed negatively because banks take the view, well, you shouldn't be using up to your limit all the time. Is this showing you're having some issues managing your credit? So the way to combat this is if you're consistently going up to you know to 75 or 80 percent of your limit. Well, first off, look at your spending. Yes. Um, that could be your first issue. For sure. But it would also would be, and this is counterintuitive, but get them to raise your limit. So for no difference in your behavior, having a two thousand dollar limit and charging eight hundred dollars on it is going to be way better for your credit than having the thousand dollar limit. I know you're chuckling because it's not you know the best financial advice, but it if isn't. you're looking to to game the system and improve your credit rating, that's what you would have to do is make sure utilization stays below the fifty percent. Okay, and uh, and this one rang for me the the next one closing an old account because mm-hmm. I, I I had a uh, an account I think it was a line of credit I hadn't used it for yeah. for a long time and I I was just kind of keeping it there just in case right yeah whatever reason uh, and they closed it because mm. I hadn't touched it yeah and, and the, I think that's a good thing but well and typically you know when I was applying for my, my first mortgage I remember I got a couple of these credit cards I've had for a while I'm not really really using them I'm going to close down these accounts because you know I think I'll look better to the bank if I don't have five places other to borrow from, if I have two places. Well, what happened, and luckily for me, I was okay, but in many situations, you're not okay because when you close those accounts, you lose all the history. So all those, you know, it could be six, seven years of great payment history, never missed a payment. You close that account, it's like it never happened. Oh, interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. and that affects your credit rating. Exactly, Got so it. lower than it would be otherwise. Okay, so... Um how, let's go to the the next thing. How? What are the things that we need to be cautious? Oh, of? there's there's one more. So we okay. said there's four things. The last one is about applying for credit. Oh, so, okay. Again, some people know this, but if you go out and you start to apply for credit at a bunch of different places, it is going to lower your credit rating because banks think, okay, well, why are you going all around town applying for credit? What if it all comes through at first? Would you at once would you be able to pay it off? Mm. So if you are going to be shopping for financing, we advise people get your own copy of your credit report, take it with you when you go for financing. 
when you're ready to make the deal, then let the person check your credit when you're going to be doing the deal. Okay. Don't let four or five people investigate you. You can bring your own credit report. That'll give them enough for what they need. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, that's. I think that's good advice. That makes sense. Or at least that, it's good. They're all. It's all good advice. Yeah. But that makes sense to me. Yeah. Exactly. So closing words. Anybody who's concerned about uh, their credit score, what should they do? Well, I think they should take a broader view and understand, you know, a credit rating is just one indicator of many. And if you've got perfect credit, but you've got a ton of debt that you're just making minimum payments on, the right answer is not to keep that perfect credit and never build any wealth over your life. The right answer is to take a short-term hit to your credit, start back at zero. People rebuild very quickly their credit rating from even a bankruptcy to a mortgage in as little as two or three years. And that's when you go see Blair at Sands & Associates. Their 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Go to their website, filled with great information, questions and answers. It's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.